Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Welcome back to the Monarchs of Britain, History Made Unboring. Last time, we talked about King Henry II, who made a lot of really good things happen to England because he was a darn responsible guy. But really, I'm a bit tired of the monarchs being in two camps, either righteous or downright losers. It's time to introduce some soap opera drama into this whole shebang. Four kings will die today. I'd say that's scandalous enough. I'm afraid to say that we're still stuck in the dirt, grime, and filth of the Middle Ages. But on December 6, 1421, a baby boy was born. He was a very, very significant baby boy. His parents, King Henry V and Queen Catherine, unimaginatively named him Henry. His father, who was a military genius, celebrated the birth of an heir by promptly dropping dead six months later, at the age of only 35. A pity, because if he had lived, the thrones of England and France might have been united. But that's not how he rolled, and England was stuck with a baby king. The new Henry, the sixth of that name, had quite a few problems to deal with. His father had been in France during almost his entire reign. He claimed to be the king of France, but he died before he could actually be crowned. Some years later, some random girl I've never heard of, named Joan of Arc, snuck in and had the rightful king crowned. In retaliation, the little boy's regents, the people who ruled the country for him while he was underage, had him crowned king of France a couple of years after his formal English coronation. Henry's childhood was probably very unhappy. He never knew his father, and his mother was hardly ever allowed to see him. As an only child, and the King of England at that, he wasn't really permitted to, um, play. Only when he turned 16 could he rule, think, and act by himself. Unfortunately, his personality left something to be desired. Henry was extremely religious, shy, and quiet. All he wanted was for the war in France to stop, because, to be honest, he was terrified at the prospect of being a military leader like his father had been. Praying safely at home in a church sounded like a good plan to him. The poor guy just never stuck up for himself, and he let his noblemen convince him to get married in 1445. The bride, he was convinced, was perfect. She was beautiful, religious, and best of all, the niece of the French queen. Surely their marriage would bring peace, and children too. Hey, who doesn't love kids, Henry? Margaret's a woman. She'll have lots of kids. It's her job. Almost immediately, the new Queen Margaret was taking her role as queen way too seriously, and she got Henry to surrender important land he held in France. Obviously, this pissed off the English people, and they started calling their queen a name that would stick with her for the rest of her life, the She-Wolf. Oh, did I mention that Margaret was only 15 years old at the time? I think when I was 15, my greatest aspiration was to pass math class. We should remember something important about monarchy. 
Just because the king and queen don't have a child yet, there is still an heir to the throne, usually one of the king's younger siblings. But since Henry was an only child, the heir in question here was a man named Richard Plantagenet, the Duke of York. He was Henry's distant cousin. Both of them descended from Edward III. The ambitious queen saw Richard as a threat and made the king ship Richard all over Europe as governor of territories. Things for England were getting terrible, and almost all of the territories in France had been lost. The people called for Richard to join the king's council and get the country out of the trench that the king had dug them into. Reluctantly, Richard returned from his station in Ireland. I think I would have been afraid to go back because of the queen, not the king. She was the real one to worry about here. Then more English armies lost Bordeaux, a place in France, the place where they make a lot of really, really good wine. King Henry was so shocked at the news that he descended into, and I'm not kidding here, a mental breakdown. He retreated into his own mind, and he didn't recognize anything or anyone around him. Staying alone in his rooms, he prayed, cried, and talked to the walls. The nobles were horrified. Kings had done stupid things in the past, yes, but Henry was absolutely nuts. They tried to cover it up, but you can only hide something like that for so long. Queen Margaret gave birth to a highly anticipated son on October 13, 1453. Henry did not even respond to the news in any way. By this time, even the queen was worried, for more reasons than one. First off, if the birth of a boy didn't force Henry into reality, that meant he was well and truly crazy. Perhaps he wasn't the child's father. Historians today find that a reasonable hypothesis. It is possible that their son was not Henry's. But who knows? Luckily for the queen, everyone was distracted by the Duke of York, who had been named regent in the king's, uh, absence. A year later on Christmas Day, oh snap, Henry came back to life. He found that during his little soul vacation, the Duke of York and the Earls of Warwick and Salisbury had become the most powerful and trusted men in the kingdom. Not believing that the king's newfound sanity would last, the three men threw their support to the York family, whose emblem was a white rose. Henry was of the Lancaster family, who preferred a red rose. Fighting broke out between the two families. Later, this period of history would become known as the War of the Roses. English people are not stupid, and they remember that the last civil wars in their country had been awful. So, most people supported the Yorks because, well, they were all sane. The king wasn't. He was dominated by a French woman, and, then, if you were French, they didn't trust you. And plus, Richard Plantagenet was a great soldier. He was likable and trustworthy. He would have made a good king. But on December 30th, 1460, the Battle of Wakefield ended all of that. It was a bloodbath. Richard was killed in battle along with most of his men. His body was stolen and beheaded. The Earl of Salisbury and Richard's second son, Edmund, who was only 17, were captured. Queen Margaret ordered them to be tortured. When they could no longer endure the pain, they were executed. Their disembodied heads were placed next to Richard's on pikes at the entrance to York, sickening the populace. That was really a bad PR move on Margaret's part, but she seems to not have been so concerned about that. Duke Richard's eldest surviving son, Edward, was now his heir, and he was something to worry about. 
Edward was godlike. He was six feet four, an incredible height for the time when most men were shorter than they are now. He was blonde, handsome, incredibly strong, charismatic, and best of all, in his prime. He was only 18 years old. Enraged by the death of his beloved father and the slaughter of his brother and men, he took command of the Yorkist, of the Yorkist army by himself. It was February 2, 1461. In Hampshire, at dawn, Edward and his men emerged from their tents in the morning to find two things. The first was an army just over the hill, commissioned by Margaret and led by two dangerous Welshmen, father and son, Owen and Jasper Tudor. The second was, to them, a sign from God. Three suns lit up the sky. Yes, three. It's not drugs, people. They didn't have drugs back then. Three suns. Edward leaned his head back, squinted into the light, and then turned to see his men who were on their knees, gazing heavenward. What does it mean? they asked him. Thinking quickly, Edward answered them, saying something along the lines of, it is the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. God is on our side. His men got to their feet and promptly destroyed the Lancastrian forces, inspired. Edward adopted the so-called Sun and Splendor as his badge, and word spread throughout the country that Edward was a sort of patriotic savior, blessed by God. Although the miracle is nice to think about, what they actually witnessed before the Battle of Mortimer's Cross was an atmospheric phenomenon known as a total parhelion, Nevertheless, total parhelions are extremely rare. It was perfect propaganda, just what Edward needed. Queen Margaret fled, going further and further south. She thought it was a good idea to feed and clothe her troops by pillage and plunder, a surefire way to condemn yourself to the English. The city of Coventry decided to switch allegiance, just as Margaret tried to enter the city. She made a fatal mistake by attempting to change course in short notice and attack the Earl of Warwick's troops. Her men were badly beaten, and in the hurry to get away, whoops, Margaret's troops forgot the King of England. Poor Henry had gone crazy again, and he was found sitting happily under a tree, singing to himself. Rumors say that Margaret, who was by now going a little crazy herself, ordered her seven-year-old son to choose the method of torture and execution for the men who had failed to adequately babysit the king. By all accounts, little Prince Edward was a cruel and selfish child, and grew up to be a cruel and selfish adolescent. I think it's fair to say that his mother had a hand in that. Margaret's army quickly found Henry and fled north. Meanwhile, Edward headed to London. It was too late to claim that he was just fighting for the reestablishment of a safe and sane king. It was obvious that he intended to be king. He didn't care about Henry. To make it seem legal, the Bishop of London presented Edward to the people and asked them who they wanted to rule over them. They all shouted, King Edward! Long live the king! They quickly crowned him in a quiet and private ceremony on June 28, 1461. Edward refused to have a legit coronation until he had either exiled or executed both Henry and Margaret. After that was done, the new king quickly left London for yet another battle. Although he was now king and not technically obligated to fight, Edward refused to leave his men. He knew it was likely that he would be killed in battle, but he put his trust in his younger brother George, who would be declared king in the event that it needed to be so. 
Towton, a small village in Yorkshire, was to be the site of the biggest, bloodiest, and most important battle of the Wars of the Roses. Prior to all the fighting, messengers going between the two sides helped negotiate the purpose of the fight. It would be to the death. As usual, the English people were tired of fighting. They wanted their men to come home. This would be the end-all, be-all. The winner would be king. The loser would leave the country forever. What made this especially terrifying was the fact that it was an even match. Sources say that each side had about 25,000 men. Edward led his troops. The Lancastrians were led by Henry Beaufort, the Duke of Somerset. It was March 29, 1462, and Palm Sunday, no less. Both sides fought for several hours in a whiteout blizzard, enduring howling wind that constantly changed direction. Many chronicles of the battle name Edward as the hero of the day, bravely charging into enemy lines and shouting encouragement to his men the whole day. His leadership is really what won the fight. The Lancastrians were destroyed, and their powerful soldiers were taken captive. As for Henry and Margaret, they did what they were good at, running away. They fled to Scotland. What they left behind is kind of disgusting, but worth mentioning. Bodies of drowned soldiers escaping filled a river and made a bridge of corpses. The ground was soaked in blood, mud, and snow. The smell must have been awful, but it was certain now. Edward was the true king of England. The Act of Accord, signed a few years earlier, was now accepted by everyone. Henry was deposed, Margaret was finally out of the picture, and their son, he would never be king. The relieved English people gave thanks in the weeks to come as the news spread. Edward was barely 19 years old, but he was the master of the whole nation. Unfortunately for him, the Earl of Warwick, in the past his ally and friend, had other plans. He believed Edward was too young to rule effectively, so he planned to be the one really pulling the strings. Quickly, he began planning to marry Edward off to a foreign princess, to gain overseas support for the new regime. Warwick, and indeed the whole country, were shocked when Edward made a little announcement. He said something like, Surprise! I'm already married! He was. He had secretly tied the knot with, in the view of his advisors, the worst possible choice. Elizabeth Woodville was a commoner, several years older than her husband, already twice widowed, and the mother of two sons. It didn't help that her previous husband had been fighting for Henry and Margaret. It was fairly stupid of Edward to think that everyone would go along with it, but he defended this marriage. Elizabeth and the king were genuinely in love, and she was a great beauty. The royal advisers didn't like the marriage, but the people did. It was the first time a king had married a common person, and they saw Elizabeth as one of their own. To please his wife, Edward arranged good marriages for her many unmarried siblings. This pissed Warwick off even more. He was disgusted by the new queen and her ambitious family. The next few years were unhappy ones for Warwick and Edward's brother George. The king and queen did what they were supposed to and had three children in quick succession. They were all daughters, but they still outranked everyone else in the land. Edward was quite direct about wanting to be king by himself. He was tired of his nobility trying to rule through him. It was the last straw. Warwick and George became allies and declared themselves to be the enemies of the king. Shocked and hurt by the betrayal of his family and friend, 
Edward formed two armies, one of which he personally led. The one without him was defeated in 1469 at the Battle of Edgecote Moor. Soon after that, the king was abducted and held prisoner. Such a rude thing. It was at this point that Warwick declared he would rule in Edward's name. This announcement was a bit absurd, and it caused Edward's nobles to raise a massive army and begin preparations to get him back. Warwick and George had no army. They were forced to release the king. Edward was a characteristically forgiving and gentle man, and he tried to reconcile with his brother and former friend, but they rebelled again the next year and were defeated once more. They ran away to France this time, where they made an alliance with Margaret, the former queen. This is a pretty crazy tie, huh? Edward was horrified when Warwick's brother also turned his coat. The king was forced to flee the country. He went to Burgundy, which was ruled by Charles the Bold, his sister's husband. Henry was reinstalled as king when Margaret brought him back, but in name only. His wife, she was the real monarch, and everyone knew it. The people hated him, and they gave her an even worse nickname, after the dog that she supposedly looked like, the French bitch. Margaret neglected to anticipate an invasion, however, and was stupidly surprised when Edward showed up. The Battle of Tewkesbury was the last stand for the on-again, off-again queen. Her precious son, the heir to the throne, was killed, and she and Henry were captured. For once, Edward refused to show mercy, and he kept Margaret imprisoned in an old rotting castle until the King of France finally got enough money to ransom her, several years later. Henry was housed once again in the Tower of London, crazy again, but safely looked after and in the royal apartments. Edward publicly made a promise to keep him alive, but Henry mysteriously died on the night of May 21, 1471. Edward's official coronation, the one he had delayed, was the next day. Was Henry really killed? Was he murdered? Did he die of sadness, as it is sometimes reported? We'll never know. Henry VI was 49 years old and had claimed to rule England for 30 years and, six, and 363 days the first time, and the second time only 163 days. I can't feel anything but pity for the poor guy. It is suspected that mental illness ran in his family, and with a domineering wife and the wrong character to be a king, he was probably extremely unhappy with his lot in life. He did leave two great and lasting legacies, so he would be remembered both educational. Henry had founded Eton College, the great old boys' prep school near Windsor, and he also commissioned King's College, Cambridge, one of the oldest colleges in England. Edward enjoyed a peaceful reign for the rest of his life. His greatest final test was his no-good brother George, who was thrown in prison after testing his royal brother's patience one too many times. They say George was privately executed. Shakespeare says he was drowned in a barrel of his favorite wine. Believe what you like. Although Edward became notorious for his enjoyment of various women, he always loved and respected Queen Elizabeth, or at least liked her enough to have ten kids. He died on April 9, 1483, only 40 years old. Despite it being likely that he died of some contagious disease, it has also been suggested that he was poisoned by his brother Richard, or possibly the victim of good living, since he had grown fat. He was survived by his wife and seven of their children, Elizabeth, Cecily, Edward, Richard, 
Anne, Catherine, and Bridget. His children would come to lead very interesting lives. But that's a story for another time. Edward left the kingdom safe and extremely rich, for not only was he a good king and a magnificent soldier, but he was a smart businessman, inventor, investor, and diplomat. Edward's son was only a little boy, so he left his brother Richard as governor and regent until the boy came of age. That sounds like a nice plan. Leave the kingdom in the hands of family you trust. Things will be okay. But the boy king declared Edward V disappeared with his younger brother Richard. Yep, they disappeared. They were kept in the Tower of London, supposedly for safekeeping. But by summer's end in 1483, no one had seen the boys for a long time. Their little faces didn't appear at windows. No laughter was heard in the courtyard. No small voices singing happily from the tower. The princes in the tower, as they are called, are one of history's greatest mysteries. It is assumed that they were killed, but nobody knows who did it. Several famous historians blame their uncle, who became Richard III. Possibly it was the ambitious Duke of Buckingham, and it very well could have been ordered by Margaret Beaufort, a woman whose Welsh son Henry Tudor claimed the throne. Whoever the killer, Richard III was only able to hang on to the throne for two years. On August 22, 1485, he was killed in battle against Henry Tudor's forces. Stories say Henry picked up Richard's bloodied crown from the field and put it on his own head, claiming the kingdom for himself. To reinforce his hold on power, he married Edward IV's eldest daughter Elizabeth of York, uniting at last the houses of Lancaster and York. The Tudors had arrived. Next week, we will celebrate not one, not two, but six marriages when we talk about the life of Henry VIII. Britain's most famous playa is one of my favorite monarchs, and I'll have to keep from ranting about him too much. You can comment on this podcast in the comments section on monarchsofbritain.blogspot.com. Any and all feedback is welcome. Until next time, cheerio! Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.